0: Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it.
1: 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense
0: of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Like I, I out that probably My ultimate genre is comedic true crime serial killer thrillers. I don't know what that means. Great. But, yeah. I mean,
1: I, I'm, I'll, I'm getting my popcorn ready. I'm it's ready. It's very watch. specific.
0: So, um, and uh, yeah, so I think that that's, I'm sort of finding my way in terms of like what, so I, I, I felt like, okay, I need to bite the bullet because it's also 30 pages. So it's not a lot like compared to a 60 pager. Oh my God. So it's half the, not half the Mm -hmm. work, but like you have half the real estate, which in some ways is harder in some ways. So anyway, I I had this idea and I, I have a friend of mine who's a comedy writer and I, I, and we were talking about this idea of these two women, sort of a dumb and dumber, but for women. And so Love we started, that. yeah. And we have these conference rooms here and speaking of dumb and dumber. So we have these conference room here with glass walls. Right. And mm-hmm. there's like um, dry erase markers and there's, you can see some kind of old writing on the glass walls. Well, so we're writing, I'm writing in my, you're not supposed to write on the glass walls. It in fact does not come off the glass wall. <laughs> speaking of dumb and dumber. So then I'm like, so someone knocks on the door and is like, Hey, you guys know that you're not supposed to be writing on the glass walls. And literally I've written on the whole wall and I'm like, Oh my God. So it took me an hour to get off with scrubs and I had to oh use different rags. Anyway, it's the stupidest thing because there's no other place to write in the room and there's no whiteboards. So there's something wrong here, but I just yeah. was like, so in, in step with, with sort of dumb and dumber. But anyway, so we're writing this like half hour comedy about just two women that are really, um, dumb but they're not really dumb of course they're genius in their own way but i liked the idea of like seeing women um yeah just seeing women do really dumb shit like bridesmaids you know like you're like yeah like that kind of a thing so i don't know how it's gonna go and we just started and we're like meeting you know once every couple weeks but like it's good for me to I I also there's a um, uh, to study comedy like i have never in my life like I've done a lot of sort of study and research about cr- drama and crime, but nothing on comedy. And there's like, of course, a million classes and stuff like that, which I'm not taking. But there's also like books and stuff that I always shied away from. I think I was scared. Like, I don't know how you feel, but like, I feel like comedy is so hard to do right that like yes. I just was scared of it.
1: Yeah, ninety percent of the comedy you see is terrible. I mean, and, and that's just talking about the stuff that gets made. So yeah, no, it's really comedy is, you know, as the saying goes, whatever it is, death, death is hard. Comedies, I forget. There's something about yeah. death and comedy. Something is harder. Writing is harder than death. But that thing that you were saying about the toxic work environment, I've heard that too. And actually, I was just reading the. um new york article about joss whedon
0: oh my so, god did you yes. read that yes and about the writers in the room and that that one writer and he's reading her shit and he's like making fun i mean he should be fucking sh- i mean i shouldn't say that but he should be hurt badly
1: so for people who don't know joss whedon was the showrunner of uh, buffy the vampire slayer and he was heralded as a feminist uh, i mean icon practically in fact when I first heard that he was not who he appeared to be, um, I instantly flashed. I had this patient who had endured a lot in her life. Let's just say that. Um, And she was extremely feminist and that was her favorite show. And he was her favorite person. And, And I distinctly remember her saying, He's like one of the only good guys in in Hollywood, something like that, something to that effect. And honestly, what the hell? I mean, please, will somebody please write a profile about unproblematic men? I it, It's gotten to the point where I'm yeah. like, is nobody doing the cool. right thing?
0: I just, I mean, you said a brilliant line, like which I'm gonna steal and put in my script, which is, in in hold my calls, which is he's one of the Hollywood good guys or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think we all are so looking for that that when someone appears to be that, we cling to them desperately in hopes that they will save all other men, and it never works. Like they're all problematic. And I think, of course, duh, we're all problematic, all humans. But but this is a special brand of problematic in Hollywood, in um, creating art, in, um, in show running land, and also just Hollywood in general. So like, this is a very specific type of toxic uh, asshole man. And there's so many, so many. And so I agree i need a profile about but see as soon as that comes out there's gonna be a woman that's like that dude fucked me over yeah
1: right 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 so remember when you were getting your mfa and you were had to watch all those old films and you said they were all written by women
0: what i never heard is when why did that change and what was the so nobody they they ran out of men journalist writers to write these sort of um, storylines for the new, for new movies, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, For the new art of cinema. So first they were silent, right? And then there were titles, you know, that people wrote. And those were written by usually at the beginning, mostly journalist men, right? And like newspaper men, like that. Then they literally ran out, I think, of men, people that could write, right? So they, so women started submitting, right some under fake names under but but a lot under their real names and they didn't give a shit because they didn't get credit so nobody cared they were women right because it wasn't they weren't on the screen so um as writers so the women really took over like they they I think they just like took over okay so that was going great until i believe what happened was until the the money men got involved from new york Yeah, so it became a business, so then the money men financed the films, bankers, and then women, I I think, like, the first world war, right, was what, was was when, I don't know. Um, 19... Seventeen, something like I don't know. We're we're I'm dumb. So, um, but like <laughs> around there, the men had to go to war and the women had to take care of the kids, right? So there was no one to. They, they couldn't. It transitioned to more uh, stereotypical gender roles, and women stopped writing. And then it just took over from. the...
1: Yeah. I see. Okay. Well, you're right. I mean, it's also like. Uh, it's fine for you to do all this work as long as you're not taking credit. Right. But When it comes time for everybody to really recognize yeah. this as an art form and take credit, then it has to be men. Well, okay. So, I mean, I never watched Buffy. I never got into him. I just read that he, his father was a television writer wrote for the golden girls and, oh. So that made it's like okay, so that's how you got in, right? And he grew up like rich on the Upper West Side. Um, I think actually the problem is the way that we want to deify people who seem good, because then, and actually this is what it said in the article, because then they have no place to go but down. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, the majority of humans, if not all have done regrettable things correct so let's don't put any let's just don't put anybody on such a pedestal but then we do that because we need heroes it's well, this very yeah. complicated thing that we can't get out of it's just the paradigm we cannot get out of we, we cannot need heroes. Go and it,
0: it started with the bible i mean it's jesus yes. it's the right, jesus right, thing right, like it goes right. back to whenever so we need someone to feel like and I think if you spend to feel like they're going to save us, right? And if you take it for the psychological bent, right? It's like parenting. We're looking for the good dad and the good mom that, by mm-hmm. the way, don't exist. They we they have also, to so
1: no. also too do not exist. We yeah. have to build it inside
0: of us. Oh my gosh,
1: I adore so them. I wear them cute. all the time. They're really look like, really good on you. Oh, good, yeah, Yay. They're
0: gorgeous. <laughs> um yeah it was super sorry for interrupting you no 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 no. i love it they're like my favorites um okay so um yeah i mean like we we, i think it comes down to and you and i always talk about this so like in my dream kind of we have basically um i've decided like a psychology podcast but a different kind of psychology podcast we already have a psychology podcast but i'm just saying we have a arts and psychology podcast but i'm obsessed with this idea now that like And it, look, it's no, it's no shocker that, you know, this is a whole personal growth industry built on this, but like that internally we have to build the good mom and dad and we have to build the the savior because, or not even a savior, a helper, because if not, we are destined to repeat this, but then it also makes for really good television, you know, like cult shows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But like, it's, it's an inside job. You know, is one of those phrases that they throw around in program and twelve step program and stuff. But it's true. It's fucking. It's true. It's true. It's so boring in a way, but it's just true.
1: Well, what's boring about it is that we, despite like being reminded of this or being. Uncovering this truth over and over again, like we just can't hold. And I'm saying we, meaning me, I cannot hold on to it. I, I, I know that, and then I forget, and then I want to make somebody else a hero, and then I want to feel bad. You know, I want. Right. And then it's like such a setup for ourselves too, because the way I worshipped Bill Cosby when I was a kid, of course he was America's dad. I needed a dad. That that makes sense. But there, there was. Even if I had found out that like something more innocuous, like they didn't like dogs or something, I that would have been a disappointment too. I mean, the, the better thing is to say, "Hmm, that person is doing some good work." I'm sure they're not perfect because I, I, I'm not excusing Bill Cosby. By the way, I don't. I don't mean to, I'm just talking more about like fandom. And and the and our innate human need to to make these people seem perfect, and then the feeding frenzy that we do when we learn that they're not actually perfect, and and it all ends up being a way of not asking yourself what your own, not taking yeah, that's what it is. We're always taking everybody else's
0: inventory, right? Instead. Instead of our own. Right. right? And, and, and that's it, what it is. And it's deadly. I mean, you know, that's cults, that's that's abusive relationships, that's domestic violence. It's like we even like organizations, so like so organizations or contests or things that help like I'm looking at because this is my world right now, like looking at the arts and, and, and Hollywood as like the, the these organizations, the blacklist, other things, things that were created to help right and then people go oh my god this is finally the answer
1: and then until it just becomes a problem too. until the yeah. pe-
0: because the people who run it are fallible right people yeah they're humans so inevitably there's a downfall so like i don't think like i think starting an organization is like the scariest thing in the world. And like, you and I have like a company, but it's different in that, like, I think we're we're developing this community so that people are stakeholders, but still like, I have to say, you know, um, there is a fear of mine that like, you know, for, for our listeners, we're, we started this cool group and you're not invited. No, no, we started this (laughs) cool group, but really it's, it's just, it's like an artist collective. Right. But even that when people are like, oh, the founders, Jen and Gina, I'm like, oh, shit balls.
1: Yeah, 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 right, right, right. Well, and that's the other thing is that we have to have a structure. Right. I mean, this, this is the debate that goes on in my mind all the time. I, 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 I was good friends with somebody in California who um, wanted to, her dream was to have a theater company where the founding members rotated artistic directorship. So nobody would be artistic director for more than like a year or two. I moved away from California right before she started it and she started it and it actually was, I think, pretty successful. It closed during COVID because like everything did. Um, And, and, and even though that sounded so cool to me, and even though I was definitely in my young and idealistic phase of life, then a part of me was like, that isn't going to work because we're people and because despite our Whatever our political leanings are, or however progressive we may feel we are, we ultimately are hardwired to want one or two or a group of small group of people to be in charge, even you know somebody always has to be in charge of the people in charge, right, and that's I mean, why that's, organizations need these structures
0: right yeah, and yeah. that's yeah and and that's yes, that's why shit gets created bylaws, rules, human resource departments are built on this thing of like oh we're going to get into trouble. So we need safety nets or procedures for when that happens. And I just, I just, I'll, I'm just like, Oh God, I don't want to get sued. You know what I mean? Like, I'm totally, like, please, totally. don't sue me. Like, please. Yeah. I'm already in a lawsuit with our evil land, like, former landlords. And I, and I don't want to be, it's like, no, well,
1: you and I are in a similar position of like, on the one hand, we want to be rich and famous. On the other hand, we don't, don't want any want, problems we don't want to have any problems yeah yeah that's a, my husband has a patient who he says is just really looking for the friction free existence just wants to have a life with <laughs> no hassle he really he's you know in his early 20s he's truly <laughs> and, and sincerely seeking a life that is hassle free yeah and as we learned from Don, who moved, Brown, who moved to the Bahamas to live a hassle-free existence, it
0: does. It does. She she found problem. You like she found problematic people in paradise. Like that's the name of my show, Problematic People in Paradise. It's going to be a show about this woman who escapes and goes to the Bahamas, and then she pitches her tent, and the fucking lady next to her pitching her tent is bonkers. <laughs> And won't leave her alone. Like that is the greatest idea for comedy ever. But like the thing is the the thing is like, yeah, I don't know. And I think you're right. I mean, I think the only answer if there is an answer is to turn inward and to look at, okay, like what's my part in this? Like, did I, and, and if I don't think I have a part, then I need to remove myself. Like, what can I do to make the situation better? And if it's not possible, then we got to go, you got to go. But like the Joss Whedon thing, reading her, the, the, the the female writers. So she like, you know, that you pitch ideas and then you write dialogue and stuff. And like, he humiliated her in front of a group of writers and no one stood up for her. Of course, because this is also, this is also it's uh, back in the day, but also it's scary. And you're a new writer and what the fuck, so uh i think what we need is more people like us in rooms because i'll tell you this i as even though i'm an emerging writer i'm not a writer that needs the money necessarily to live or if someone came down and said to me you can't be a television writer or a screenwriter I would not kill myself, right? So mm-hmm. I don't have that much to lose. Like, look, if I get in a writing room, I would be fucking scared shitless. But I also like to think, and maybe I'm wrong, that if some shit was going on like this, I would be like, wait, the fuck? I worked in social services. This shit didn't even happen there. We're not going to have it here when it's, this is like a fucking paradise job. So stop this, man. Right, right. Like, right. we're not doing this here. But mm-hmm. I, and I would be fired, which would be okay because you know what? I could always go to the ARCO AMPM. PM. Like I am telling you right now, there is a backup plan and that plan is a minimum wage job that I have done before. So yeah. I, while I will be scared, I would like to think, and we'll see if I ever get in a room, but like, I would like to say that I'd be like, Whoa, 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 you're being a dick. Like we can't do mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. And if you're gonna yeah. do this, I'm gonna go, and then I'm gonna fucking drag you on Twitter, and your career's over. So of great. course,
1: we, of course, we'd like to think that that's what we would do. I mean, would we really do that in, in a given situation? It's hard to say. It's truly hard to say. I was proud of myself at the artist collective thing that I said the thing that I've never said in a situation like that before, which is like, okay, but how are we going to really make this diverse? Like literally, I don't mean let's have ideals and let's post a picture of Martin Luther King on MLK Day. I mean, like, how do we actually do do something differently? And that only, I think that only comes from facing what your own fears are uh, about things. I mean, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. It's just like a very clear progression from, when I start to look at all of my stuff, I become less afraid of all of my Mm. stuff. And when I'm overall less afraid, then I feel more empowered to
0: do, to actually live according to my values instead of just wanting to. And I think the real step that I'm noticing with you is that um, you took that sort of, you took a stand in your last organization and said, wait, I cannot do this. I can't participate in this and here's why. And, um, you said what you needed to say, and you removed yourself from the situation, but you, you definitely took a stand. So I think taking a stand in whatever way we can, and it's going to be really interesting to see how we do in the artist collective when shit comes up. Cause it will come up, you know, one of us is going to write some biased, racist ass shit because mm-hmm. that's the human nature, Right. Of course. So, and then when we're called on it, which I hope we are, it's going to be really interesting to see how I, how you, how every person in the collective handles it. It's going to be messy and it's going to be weird. I think it's going to be important, though, to see how we handle it, because that's really a testament to is the group going to last? And also, are we going to walk the walk that, that am I going to walk the walk of the talk I give? So, like, we can use it as a mini exercise and like what would we do in a writer's room or some kind of uh, entertainment like thing if someone does some weird shit yeah either on purpose or not on purpose
1: yeah yeah that's it that's that's uh, the only thing to fear is fear itself yeah.
0: hey let me run this by you Most boring thing, but it's true. Like, I hate having my blood pressure taken. I have high blood pressure, it goes up to 187 every time in the doctor's office. 187 because of my panic. 187. Like, that's my number. I know it's gonna do it. They retake it manually, it goes down to 140 or 130. It's like the thing, and I could feel it happening. And the, the lovely nurse no was supposed, you know, it's so interesting. When I told him what was going on with me, I could see he got anxious and then he started trying to tell me funny stories that weren't funny. And like, he was like, Oh, just we'll have a cocktail together. He's not trained. He doesn't know what's happening. So, um, it went way up and I just thought, you know what? That's what it is. He goes, Oh yeah, it's 187. I was like, yes, that's what I said it would be. And then she came in and I talked to my amazing doctor and, and by the end, she takes it manually and it went down to 140 over. I mean, it's fine. By
1: the way, why, why do they take blood pressure at the
0: very beginning of an appointment? I mean, they should just always do it at the end. It's insurance. Like- it, it's dumb and it's insurance. It's all insurance based. So I think they're trying to get the ins- money out of the way first. So if they do the vitals then they get paid, right? So So Mm. they, but they don't have to do it first, but it's just the way the system is. And my doctor was like, no, we're never doing this again. Like I'm always, she wants to do it with the cuff first to see where I'm at because that, but she doesn't have to be right at the beginning of the appointment. And then she'll always, they always take it manually. The only reason they don't take it manually. The only reason is to save time. Right. And then it's not really saving time in many cases. I no. mean, I'm
1: sure there must be people out there who don't get that white coat fever, but nobody in my family, every single person in my
0: family has a high reading at the at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Of and the they thing. think I'm having a stroke. I'm like, no, I'm having a panic attack. Like there's a different thing. And then my doctors get it. They're amazing. But the nurses don't really I mean, they're not there to they're not therapists. Right. That's not their jam. They're trying to get your right. vitals and get the fuck out to the next patient.
1: God, that that thing you're describing of. You're with the nurse, and he's and his level of experience or whatever means that he's going to be often afraid of situations that are happening. That that collision of two people's fears in a small space, like yes. in the doctor's office, yes. is always so overwhelming. And you just and and also couple that with the social thing where you can't really say, "We're both afraid right now." Yeah. You know, because he would look look at you like you were crazy. But what if you could say, Jim, we're both afraid right now. You're talking about cocktails inappropriately, and I have high blood pressure. Yeah. Let's do let's do something different. Let's
2: yes. let's don't
1: pretend like this isn't happening yes. because the other thing that happens to you, I know, I know this for a fact, is when you feel like people are pretending yeah your anxiety shoots way uh, and you it, feel like you're being asked to participate yeah. in the pretending
0: and yeah. and 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 here's the thing like literally your body cannot lie so you're actually taking a reading of my anxiety that's what my doctor said like that's all it is so blood pressure when you take it in the arm is actually just a reading of your arm the blood flowing yes. through your arm it is mm-hmm. not an indicator literally of what's going on. Otherwise it's not great because it means that everything's working too hard usually, especially in a non-threatening situation. But she, my cardiologist is brilliant in that. She's like, I don't base anything on that. What I base Mm -hmm. it on is if you, how you feel, I, I can use it as a gauge, but like, unless I lay hands on you and hear, listen to your heart, check your brain with a scan. I don't know what the hell it is. So I, it's just ease. People are trying to make things easier, and really, it's it's we've created a real a real fucked up situation. But I wish I had said to Leo, his name was Leo, like I wish I had said that because he was like, oh my god, we're gonna be fine, and I was like, oh no, <laughs> this is the worst. That's like when you're afraid to fly, and someone's like, oh my god, you're gonna be fine, like just, everything's fine, like don't worry, and you're like, oh my god, you're fucking crazy, and you're anxious.
1: The amount of times I hear somebody say to somebody else don't feel fill in the blank, whatever it is you're feeling. I God, what a waste of time. Don't ever say, I and I'm saying it to myself too, because I'm sure I say it too. Don't ever tell somebody you shouldn't feel that way. Don't, it just, uh, what you should be saying is, wow, when you tell me you feel that way, that makes me really nervous that whatever I feel that way or, yeah yeah there's just a lot of work to be done in terms of our own self-knowledge and honesty and ability to be honest in all our affairs
0: and so the doctor for me is like a doctor and flying is the best way to tell like where that it's the best way to like work out like what's happening for me because I'm like oh my god these this is and I did it that's the important thing I did it I my labs are all fine like everything like my doctor's amazing I've lost weight I have 30 Pounds more to go to be like an optimal heart health, you know, which is fine. I mm-hmm. don't want to do that over the next couple of years. I'm fine, but mm-hmm. it, it was traumatizing, and it's always traumatizing. And she knows it's traumatizing. It's just that also the nurses, there's such a high turnover. The last nurse I had there was amazing. She was this large woman that I adored, and by large I mean she was like six feet two, and like just a large woman. I felt way yeah. safe, way safe. Yeah, she's interesting. Like, I read your chart she said i know we know all about you you we're going to just do it and then we did it and it was low the first time she took it <laughs> she it didn't go by to the way,
1: by the way that's what they should be teaching uh, people whether it's true okay. or not tell the patient you read their chart yeah that is some everybody struggles with this thing of like Oh really? I'm going to repeat to you the same thing I've already now repeated three times to other people in this same office. I'm going to answer verbally questions that you just had me answer on paper. I I know that that's for insurance too, but like, do yourselves and everybody else a favor, just. Let the patient know. I mean, it'd be ideal if you read the chart. If you actually did read the chart, right? But if not, just tell them you did.
0: Well, the other thing that happens, and yeah, right, lie. I don't care if you lie to me. <laughs> but it's not. It's like the intention behind the thing. So, like the other thing on my, I am at St. John's, and I love the system of love. But when you literally type in my name, because I've seen my doctor do it, the issues come up, and you could see it. So it says, if you when my chart plops up, it says. White, the first thing it says is white coat hypertension, like mm-hmm. in big letters. Yeah. And then it says um mood disorder. Then it says AFib. Like those are the things. So you don't even have to read the chart. You could get the subtitles.
1: Totally. The sub- yeah. You, just you, the bullet points.
0: You, yeah. You could read the cliff notes right there in big letters. And <laughs> she did that. I'm sure she didn't like look into the minutiae of my chart. Of course. Right, 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 right. Yeah. But yeah. I just felt, and of course it was lower when she took it with the cuff, it was 150. So it's like. Anyway, I have this whole, I'm on this whole crusade to like not change the medical system because fuck all that, but to like really look at, okay, like since they're probably not going to change, right? Because of the, whatever, how can I do it? And basically I just have to go through it. Like I just.
1: Yeah. You just got to go through it. That's it. There's no way, there's no way out, but through uh, this weekend, I participated, I t- I took a writing workshop seminar and, and I'm not going to say who it was with because uh, I won't. Okay. Uh, um, I mean, I'll tell you, okay, I will sure. tell you, I, I sure. will bleep this out. It was. Oh yeah. Playwrights. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So I took this writing workshop and it was whatever, it was 150 or $175 and it was a two hour workshop where it didn't give a lot of detail about what was actually going to be in the workshop, except for the two main people who were the mentors in it. And what it turned out to be is the first hour was a Q and A between those two writers, which it's like, Hmm, you each of you have a Wikipedia page. I do know the answer to most of these questions already And then the second half was writing exercises, which were actually good. I mean, you know, I I love a writing exercise. One of them was um, write a a scenario, a scenario that's impossible to write something that's impossible to stage. You know, mine was a peacock smoking a cigarette.
0: Fantastic.
1: So your so your mind goes into. I mean, just the act of doing the writing exercises is freeing. Um, but <laughs> I couldn't help, like Carrie Bradshaw, I couldn't help but wonder. Yeah, that's
0: great. That's a great question.
1: What, what are we doing here? Like, <laughs> is, is it right? Okay, writing, actually, I have like 15 books on my nightstand that are full of writing prompts. Like, that's not really what I needed from you. I needed from you... And and here's the thing I want to run by you. Like, what did I need for what did I need from this? What was I actually looking for? Well, if I'm honest with myself, I'm always hopeful that um, when I get to meet people who have some degree of success that somehow Meeting them will behoove me down the line. What I did end up spending a lot of time doing during the Q&A that I didn't care about was writing down the names of all 146 attendees so I could look them up on social media so I could follow them from our Undeniable Writers account <laughs> so that they would follow us back. And that kind of worked because like five people did follow us back. Um, and uh, In other words, I guess I guess I'm thinking about it like oh, I'm going to become a better writer. I have this idealistic thought about why, you know, when when I sign up for something like this, but the reality is I just want somebody to pay me to write something. And I have these ways of, that I think are going to be successful in terms of getting me there, meeting this person, connecting with this person on social media. Um, And maybe that's fine. Maybe that's fine. Maybe that's worth $150. You know, for me to feel like I did something for my writing and for yeah, the, yeah. You know, for yeah, those people right? like I guess, I guess that it's, I don't have a very well formulated sure. question in it, but it's like, do you know what I mean when yes. I say you're you're gearing yourself up to do this thing that you're telling yourself is going to be for a reason that's not actually the reason that you're ultimately going there for? Yes,
0: absolutely, and I think I will say. That from taking things and from being a facilitator of things, a lot of, right, uh, and this is what we talk about on the podcast. Art is so hard when you talk, when you transition into trying to make money from it. Because everyone's looking for different things, obviously. But also, like these workshops and seminars and classes... They just vary so wildly in terms of what the fuck they are. Zoom is weird. Wh- what are we doing? I, I l- literally heard about, um, so like my MFA program I left is now, you know, they met in person and now they had to just do a session on Zoom again because of the virus. And I heard that like half of it was just filler time like filler because they did it. So filler, I think that's what's happening. It's there's a lot of filler going on. So it's not so much that the cost is exorbitant of 150 or 175, it's sort of like, right. What is the content of the thing? Look,
1: what is yeah, it? Well, I mean, for, for for what it was, it was exorbitant, right? Because, because, because of course those two people need to make their money to put food on their table. I guess, okay, here's I guess I'm, I'm narrowing down on it. Good. There's just what you said. A lot of most people probably go into artistic pursuits for a more pure reason than to make money from it. But of course you're met with this. Okay. Well, if I want to do this all the time, then I have to make money from it. And it leads to a lot of pretending about what we're really doing here. Like, these two people needed to have 150 people give them $150. That's a
0: lot of money, by the way. Yeah. Right. Or is
1: it because that's, you know, yeah, probably a drop in the bucket compared to what they've paid for their own education. Right. 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 You know, know, so uh, I, but, and I guess I wouldn't want the, I guess I wouldn't want to suspend to not, suspend my disbelief because we all sort of need to tell ourselves a story about why we're doing something. And sometimes if the answer is it's just for money or if it's just that's unacceptable to you for your own value. So you have to tell yourself a a lie about what it is that you're really going into it for. But you're right. It's filler. A lot of it is filler. And you just have to know that going in again, don't put everything on a pedestal. I mean,
0: it's really interesting. It's like Right. I, 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 think it's how I navigate systems. It comes down to, so like, what is the system of, even on a little level, like what is the system of this workshop? Right. And then like, once we get in there and we see like, oh, this is the system, they're just going to talk. And I think you <laughs> did the exact right thing for you, which was how can I make this work for me? Yeah. So I have a, just a quick success story that I love. So really? this organization that I was a part of that I won't name that I thought was going to be the savior, this right, helping writers, right? Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Did not work out for me, but then I thought, okay, well, is there any part of the system I can use? So hmm. I got a great, great, great two page pitch out of this, this, this organization. Yes. And then I said, okay, but wait, what else can I do? So they offer these, um, you, you can, uh, it's a pitching calendar and you can sign up to send your pitch or do a verbal pitch to the manager of your choice for a set for a $30, which is nothing to me. I mean, like mm-hmm. compared to what mm-hmm. I spent $30 on tank tops, you know what I mean? That I don't right, right, so like, right. okay, fine. So I was, I targeted a manager, one that was from a comp one that was from a company. I adore. And, um, from what I know about them. I mean, what do I really know? But really, they seem really cool. And he seems really cool. And the work he likes is really cool. He's a manager. I said, okay, well, what the fuck? I'll just send him my pitch. I'll sign up and send it. So mm-hmm. I did that. And I did not hear. And I did not hear. And I did not hear. And I said, oh, they fucked me again. Like, they didn't even give him my shit. You had to, like, fill out this the- But that. And so I said, you know what, Jen? Stick up for yourself. So I wrote them and said, hey, I never heard back. I did this thing. I never heard back from my... The manager i pitched and they said oh no no it's coming they have until this day to do it which wasn't clear in the thing but okay so i said okay we'll see we'll see if it comes my way like i was expecting nothing so then on friday i get an email he fucking loved the pitch loved it he loved everything everything got excellence and he was like please send me the script asap so he now has yes! hold my calls and we'll see. I mean, it can't, it, it, it how exciting. Yeah. So that all is to say, and I know we have to wrap up, but like to say, like, I have to figure out how to navigate certain systems to my benefit. And that's just what my clients had to do to navigate the system that when I was a therapist, that's just what t- students have to do in school systems. We figure out how to navigate these systems and these systems are really fucked up because yeah. people are fucked up and they run the system. So anyway, Everyone finds their way, I think, to navigate the medical system, the legal system, the entertainment right. system. Like you find figure your way. out your system.
1: Figure out figure out your system. Yeah. F O Y S. FOIS. Foys. Figure out your system. Podcast, we are talking to Austin Tichner. Austin is a writer, director, performer, and managing partner of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. And he's funny and gregarious and he's got a great way with a story. So please enjoy our conversation with Austin Tichner.
0: Voice? Did you do
2: voiceovers? Did I? Did I miss your? I I did until my voice my agency's voiceover department uh, closed, and uh, I've just got too many things going on. Uh, Well, this is part of my problem. For we'll talk about my problem. Let's talk about all your problems,
0: but in order, (laughs) but in order, (laughs) in order from like maybe three, four years old. Uh,
2: Yeah, yeah. The bedwetting. We can go wherever you need to go. uh, Whatever.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, let's start with this. Austin Titcher, congratulations! You survived theater school. Yay me! Yay us! Yay! Yay, yay all of us. Where did you go?
2: Uh, for undergraduate, I went to University of California, Berkeley, oh. where I was a drama and history Nancy. double major. So you were a real like um, a
0: real dummy, is what you're saying.
2: I'm a re- <laughs> well. It was a lot easier to get into Cal, uh, uh, however many years ago okay. that was. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say forty. Um okay. but uh uh but yeah I couldn't possibly get in, in there now. And then I took a year off and then I got my MFA in directing from Boston University.
1: Wow. Oh okay, in directing. All right, cool. But for Berkeley you were studying what
2: I was, was it acting. Hist- I was well the the Berkeley theater department I mean the good news was I mean the, well the bad news was they didn't um they didn't give you much direction in terms of what you should be studying, but the great news was they didn't give you much direction in terms of what you should be studying. Right. So it, you were, we were constantly putting up our own shows and making our own art. And in fact, when I had, um, when I was there, I got a job stage managing the Oakland Symphony, oh, and cool. that took me, uh, that took me away from any. Um, Faculty-led productions uh, that re- rehearsed in the evening because I was always working in the evening. Oh, and making money. Yeah, the, 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 I always had to explain to my faculty about that. Um, so I was in a lot of student productions that rehearsed, you know, after midnight or <laughs> first thing oh, in the wow. morning right. or wherever, wherever we did. It was, it was, um, it was great. I mean, and I, I know a ton of so many talented people came out of that program. Um, and and you're right, actually talented, regardless of how talented they were, they were no dummies. You know, it was filled with kind of pretty, pretty bright folks. And that was exciting. Mm
1: -hmm. So then what's the what's the gap between the Berkeley and getting your MFA? And did were you directing before? How did you how did you pick directing?
2: I'd been doing shows, honestly. How far back did you say we wanted to go? I've been doing puppet shows since kindergarten. Oh, I was that kid.
0: I love puppet shows.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I got to put it to good use. I've never stopped doing puppet shows, really. Um Um, But but I started doing plays in elementary school and I would always get the parts, not the greatest parts, but the parts with the most lines, because really super wanted to play Peter in the line, the witch in the wardrobe in third grade. But they cast me as the professor because he had all the speeches and narration and I could memorize it like so playing an old man. Even (laughs) that.
0: I was always the narrator, Um, always. And I thought the narrator doesn't have a fucking personality. What the
2: fuck? (laughs) What? Well, exactly. So you got to put you got to bring your own. I mean, the good news, bad news. Again, good news, bad news. Um, but I uh but then I when I started doing community theater in my teens and um and doing shows in high school and then shows in college and there were more um, instances of me looking at my director and going, I could do a better job than mm. this. You know, I, I would see, I would see shows that would inspire me, a great direction, great artistry that would inspire me. But these crappy mediocre directors motivated me. Oh, <laughs> like I can be, I could, I could be at least as mediocre as right, these guys right. and I bet I could be better. So, so anyway, that's, that's yeah. what, that's what, uh, I, I got the double major in history in drama because it was the early 80s and the, the rise of the Reagan youth and uh, everybody was going to law school. And I oh. thought, you know what? I'll go, I'll do this and this will be fun and I'll go to law school. Oh. And literally in, my, in that year off, after graduation, uh, my dad had been to Hastings Law School for a year and he had to drop out to take care of his mother who was dying of cancer and in the 50s. And uh, he said, yeah, don't go to law school you will hate law school. So I I had that father who encouraged me to not
0: wow do that
2: and to follow my dream instead so wow. I applied to graduate Why do school. you think
0: yeah. would do you think uh that he just knew you so well or like why do you think he thought you'd hate it?
2: I um bec- I think he knew me pretty well actually. I mean I he think I I he knew I was um uh idiosyncratic uh i like storytelling um i didn't like close reading (laughs) um Mm. uh, i i actually could i bet i bet i've only figured this out recently i bet i would have loved being a lawyer but i would have hated going to law school yeah Mm
1: -hmm. and (laughs) yeah a lot of people say yeah
2: yeah and i and i had two college roommates who had subsequently gone uh Mm -hmm. and to become lawyers and every time i would see them then and then over the decades now um, they would say, Oh God, you, you dodged a bullet. You dodged a yeah. bullet. Yeah. 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 My it's,
0: husband went to law school and was a lawyer and he liked, well, I don't know about liked, but he law school is okay. And he hated being in the courtroom and being a lawyer and he doesn't do it anymore. But yeah, it's a very bizarre profession. So I'm glad you didn't end up there.
2: Me too. The, the, the weird thing was I applied to, um, different schools i thought i was going to go get my mfa in acting actually and i applied to like five or 6 different schools i got into all of them except for yale you know fuck those guys nobody um, gets to yale i'm
0: not even <laughs> sure yale's a real thing you know what i mean
2: <laughs> it's it's just like narnia right. Um uh, i but i and i got into i but it really came down to nyu's MFA program at Tisch and where they gave me all the money. And it's like, wow, I'm going to make money going to this school. But I, I, visited some of the classes. I didn't much care for some of the classes that I saw and, 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 and Boston university was offering less money, but that, and, and, and BU was a directing program. And I realized kind of in a light bulb moment that I would have more opportunities to act as a director than I would have to direct as an, as quote, just an actor. Um, oh. And I think that was one of the few only smart decisions uh, I ever made about my career. Wow. What so, didn't
1: you like about the classes you saw at Tish?
2: Um, I, I, they, one thing was that they take a bunch of people in their first year and then winnow it down over the years of the program. And I thought that was kind of bullshit. Yeah. And, um, and then I saw the huge numbers of people that they took and I went, I, I I just kind of went, I think I'm better than that. I'm not interested in this, and I want to be challenged. um um, not that I'm a great actor. and I'm because I'm not. i'm 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 certainly not a transformative actor. I mean, this is what I got. Right. Um, um, I'm not gonna be i I knew that about myself. Um, and so directing, I just thought would give me more of a challenge and ultimately more of a control. That Of of my career. I think that was the illu- the illusion we strive for in the arts and maybe in other fields is that illusion of control. And I felt like I wanted to be not just an actor. I wanted to tell stories. And sometimes those stories I could tell from somebody else's script and direct them. And sometimes I had already by then started writing some plays, wrote a musical in college. And I thought, you know, maybe that's a thing. Two again, again, because I knew my limitations as an actor. I just went, there's more stories I think I want to tell.
0: You know, it's so interesting. It's like, if I, if I, if NYU offered me like $10, I'd go, I would have gone. Like, I, I think that it's, there's something I love about people who are like, in the face of just being offered some shit, they still say no, because it's not the right thing for them. Like, I just love that. Mm-hmm. I just wish if I, you know, I would love that for everybody I love is to go into a situation, whether it's as an actor, or director, or whatever, as an adult or a, ch- a youngster and say, you know, you're offering me this job, this money, this thing. But I know in my heart, like this isn't right. I'm going to take another route. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. Like that's like a, the freedom.
1: It's always the dif- it's always the difference between people who were brought up to think they deserved something and people who were you know brought up to believe take
0: whatever you right. get because
1: nothing you know nothing is really coming
0: and I way. and I think that yeah. they, everyone comes by their shit honestly so it's not even like yeah and but like yeah I was brought up to like if someone's offering you anything and I think. Um, Look, you do what you have to do, but I can honestly say that did not serve me. That did not serve me that attitude of like take what you can get and just go. Mm-hmm. I didn't even apply mm-hmm. because I didn't even apply any wear out. Like, anyway. So okay, continue.
1: So but wait, Austin, so you auditioned for all for five uh, acting Holy programs? Shit. Yeah. Okay. Do you yeah. remember your audition?
2: Uh I, I can't I can't recite it to you, but I can't, but I do. It was it was uh it was uh Hal's speech from Henry Ford. Oh, part one. that's a great speech. Um, Telling his dad, you know, I would not have it so. I will prove to you that I'm your son. And 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 actually, just recently, I realized, oh, you know what? I should learn the other half of that scene now. So I've started working on Henry IV's uh, thing speech that yells at his son too. That's been that's been a fun process. Uh, I had to do that, and then I had to for the directing programs. I had to. to Different programs required different things, but I had to direct plays on purpose and uh, on paper, not on purpose. Well, on purpose, <laughs> but also mostly on paper. Um, so I would have to turn in here's here's how I would direct Tom wow. Stoppard's *Travesties*, or here's like one Carnegie Mellon. I think I had to I had to direct a scene from *Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead*. I, I chose it in front of whoever was interviewing me you know, so I had to bring in actors. It was a huge. Oh, that's crazy. crazy. But that ridiculous. is a
1: hard thing to audition for. I mean, directing has got to be a really hard thing to audition for. Did you like the program at BU?
2: Uh, I, with reservations? Yeah, I did. I mean, with the same reservations I have with all which theater is, schools. Which is? Uh, which is, they're, they're never exactly what you want. Um, um, and 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 the thing I did, the thing I liked about the Bu you program is that i think this is the best part about a theater school is the people you meet mm. and i met great people uh i and i worked with some great people too um and, and in all and again it, like all theater schools but maybe everywhere you work you learn some things that you love and you learn some things that you're never, ever, ever going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I met some wonderful people, people with whom I, I'm still in touch and several of whom I've worked with over the years. The thing I didn't like about the BU program was that their actors, their undergraduate actors were BFAs. And and I think I'm uh, I, I, I'm already on record as saying that I would, uh, I, I think a BFA is a silly Ooh. degree. Uh, Um, I I just, uh, it's not, it's not a silly degree for everybody, people who know what they want to do. They know they want to be actors. That's all they're ever going to want to do. Boom. Go get your BFA. Um, great. But the, I, I wasn't aware of the undergraduates at BU ever having to like read a paper, write a paper, read a book. No, (laughs) You talk about the news, talk about current events. And I I I hate talking about current events, particularly currently in the last four or five years, because I can be a sparkling dinner con- companion or we can talk politics. Um, there's there's right. it's not a there's not a subtle gradation sure. there between those two extremes. Um, no, but I so, think you're right. So,
0: look, 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 let's pause and say BFAs are so uber specific at a time where no fucking buddy at 1918 i was 17 when i started my bfa what in the fu- i mean it's too specific i needed more vagueness i needed more like i literally need i remember sitting in history and being in we had to take like one history class and being like <laughs> i don't know what she's talking about and i have no desire because my my acting teachers are telling me like basically yoga is most important in life so so i and it's not their fault like that was their job but like i needed a more general education i really did i really did
2: well, and my, my wife had, has her BFA uh, from uh, Boston Conservatory of Music and her emphasis on musical theater. So, um, and she wanted to direct and she wanted to improvise. And that's what she has gone on to do. Our, we've had, we have told both of our children, do not, do not, do not go into show business. Do not, do not. We have a 50% success rate. Um,
0: okay.
2: our son has decided, is is not. Um unless he backdoors it. I can see him somewhere down the line writing a screenplay little shit. Yeah,
0: and it'll um, probably get and made our daughter and he'll ha- be like the next, you know.
2: <laughs> right. fucking um and our daughter is. She's a senior now uh, in a theater program. And the one thing and wait, I wait, she's I, getting
1: a BFA. No, oh thank God. That's oh, okay. the one
2: thing the one thing we would not support is a BFA. And it, it, like in our first orientation meeting. When they told her what she would be allowed to do as a BA and what she would not be allowed to to do as a BFA, she looked at me and went, yeah, okay, you were right. You were right. Um, uh, And I think it's great because, you know, we told her all her life, this is a horrible, horrible, horrible business. And she Mm. has quite rightly said, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want to do. And you and mom succeeded in this business. So how tough could it be?
1: Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, touche. So, I really, so really got you there.
2: <laughs> well, we, we have raised her to sass her elders. <clears throat>
1: so you were always interested in Shakespeare, though, because when you were auditioning for you those programs, fucking you, were, you were doing
0: Shakespeare monologue. Yeah. Yeah, I did not. Yeah, I, did I did not
1: do that. You went full, you went full
2: Shakespeare. I, w- I wish I could remember whether that was required or not. I think it um, might have been okay. because that, you know, we were all part of the the league of the league of whatever training programs professional training programs or whatever so you know you were going to work in the classics and i will very good (laughs) um it was interesting and i was always i was good with text but i wasn't good at connecting emotions to the text until much much later Mm -hmm. um uh so it, it it was but i have been Uh, fond of Shakespeare. I I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, I was born in San Francisco, grew up there, and um, was lucky as a kid because we got taken to field trips at American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And so I saw great productions of Julius Caesar and Othello and um, uh, uh, Mackers and and an amazing production that I think you can see in its entirety now on YouTube of Taming of the Shrew a Commedia dell'arte based, inspired Taming of the Shrew with Frady Ulster and Mark Beastmaster Sanger as Petruchio, um, uh, wearing tights and no shirt most of the time. And Lord, my ovaries started to melt when I watched him. Oh, uh, golly. <laughs> And then the first, then the first, my first exercise at BU in the directing program was to take a play. And again, I think I could pick my own play or maybe, I don't know. I ended up picking much Do about nothing. Do a five minute cutting of this play.
0: Five minutes of the the whole play?
2: five minutes of the whole play what do you need what is essential in this play do you need to tell the story of this play in five minutes and you know you're you get you you they throw actors at you and you can do whatever you want and so it was a great exercise not just for shakespeare but for yeah. storytelling generally
1: oh so in that scenario do you do you lean on picking bits for exposition or picking bits for whatever the emotional arc is of the story.
2: Yeah, yes, um, <laughs> yeah. all of that. Uh, it really, I guess it would depend on the exercise. I mean, Taming the Shrew is a comedy, so I'm going to make it a com uh, I mean, Much Ado About Nothing is a, is a comedy, so I'm going to make it a comedy. Um, but it was also experiments in tone and, um, you know, what? how serious do you want your comedy to be? How wacky, how whatever. I mean, that's always that. It's, it's really, um, it's a really that's my form of cooking is mixing in the, the spices of comedy or the, 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 the base, the broth of pain and tragedy that grounds the comedy. Um, uh, Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it was in grad school that I finally started to get around the idea that I had to have all the answers when I stepped into the rehearsal room. Mm -hmm. Um, It Mm -hmm. was learn, realize, and plus being an actor, I wanted to, work with actors and get actors ideas so i don't want to come in and go oh i figured it all out all you need to do is this this and this it's way more interesting uh to just work with the actors and let them bring their ideas to Ah. it i don't know i don't know everything and i don't need to know everything
1: yeah no absolutely this is a different and and a lot of films are made where the director has already figured everything out every shot before they go in and, you know, I mean, it's a gamble because if you're really, really good, th- that can turn out fine. But if you're not, then it can appear very distracted. Okay. So tell us how reduced Shakespeare is. Yeah. And for people who don't know, reduced Shakespeare is taking all of the plays of Shakespeare and condensing them, not unlike this five minute Much Ado you did, or Taming, whatever it was, um, and presenting it to schools, right? And to all kinds of. Well, ish. Oh, okay.
2: It, itch um it started uh I was not one of the founding members of it it was founded by it actually we just celebrated our 40th anniversary last congratulations. summer
0: that congratulations that August
2: thank you August uh, I've only been with the company 30 years this year but I'll get okay to that. um they, it's the company started as a pass the hat act at Renaissance fairs in Northern California performed by a bunch of friends who thought it would be fun. Daniel Singer was the man who, who, who thought, wouldn't it be a great idea to call ourselves the reduced Shakespeare company? We'd be the other RSC. And, oh, you know, we would just do, you know, we just do short versions of the plays with few people. Um and those five people eventually became three people as people fell away, and uh, and then they realized oh three is a magic number because we know that song, and uh, uh they started doing a, a three person Romeo and Juliet. Uh, when they did that for a couple of summers, then they did. Then uh, Jess Winfield dropped away, and they did a two person Hamlet. Or if I got that backwards, I do have I do have that exactly backwards. They did a three they did a three person um, Hamlet for for uh, a handful of years. Then they did a two person Romeo and Juliet because Jess had walked away for a bit, and then and then somebody said, "Well, you've done two of Shakespeare's plays. You should do all of his plays." There's only thirty there are 35 left. How tough could that be? And they wrote the song. Well, wrote the show the show behind me uh, the complete. The Complete Works of William Shakespeare, abridged and premiered it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in August of of 1987, thinking that would be the swan song of the company. It turned out to be uh, uh, just the beginning because interest from other companies and other theater festivals uh, started coming in and it became sort of a full time job by 1989, which is when Daniel left to become an Imagineer. at uh, at Walt Disney and helped design theme parks and, and Reed Martin replaced him. Now Reed, the bald guy in the company uh, (laughs) and I were in the drama department together at university of California at Berkeley. And along with Jess Winfield, he had been in that department as well. So when Jess, when Daniel left, Jess thought of Reed when Jess left, they both thought of me. And, 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 and so now for the last Thirty-ish years, Reed and I have been running the company as the original guys have uh, fallen away, and we've expanded our repertoire of plays. So it's not just the complete works of William Shakespeare; it's now reducing other wow. huge, boring topics into short, silly comedies. So the complete like, history, what? Yeah, the complete history. Funny, you should ask. The complete history of America abridged. The Bible, the complete Word of God abridged. um, uh, Now I'm looking (laughs) at the show. All the great books abridged. Every 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 book you should have read in high school but probably didn't. Oh, Uh, completely Hollywood abridged. All the great movies. All the uh, all the world. Complete world of sports abridged. The uh, the ultimate Christmas show abridged, and then our last, our final two shows, our most recent two shows, have taken us back to our our our, um, Shakespearean roots because we have written William Shakespeare's long lost first play abridged, and and our new show, which we is two years old now, but we've only had seven performances because of the pandemic that shut everything down, is Hamlet's Big Adventure. A prequel. Oh,
0: that's fantastic. So I just want to say like, there is, it's interesting. We talk a lot um, to people, obviously to artists and there is something like magic. So getting just sort of discovered at the fringe festival in Edinburgh is like the dream, right? So like I did a yeah. show at the fringe in New York, my show was not discovered. Uh, let's just say like, that was it for the show basically. And like, something special happens, like that is the dream, right? That they had this sort of love for language and love for Shakespeare and wanted to make clearly fun and funny and accessible to people. And I'm just so, it's like the timing must have been so right for that specific thing at that specific time in Edinburgh. For then it became, I mean, the dream, they became a full-time job for them. Like that is like the dream. So do you think it's just like, it's just, do you, do you both think it's like the magic of like timing mixed with like that? Cause most shows that go to fringe festivals, that's it. Like that is it. Like the Swan song, if that's even it. So how, yeah. what, what made it so desirable to other companies, do you think?
2: I think it was the the on the ensemble how well how well the three guys played with each other. They'd been doing it in at Renfairs and playing it in front of audiences of all different oh. types and all different in all different kinds of situations, outdoors, indoors. So they were extremely tight and there have been commercial productions of the complete works without members of the Reduced Shakespeare Company and they've all kind of failed oh. because Bringing in three three actors, no matter how good they are, you don't have that same sense of ensemble and same sense of timing that 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 we do, who have been doing it for years. Uh. I mean, we always thought of ourselves as a, as much a comedy team as a theater company. So when we're hiring new actors, we're looking for the three comic spokes of the wheel or legs of the stool, right, to hold everything up um again part of the problem is sometimes you get uh three identical guys you can't tell them apart they have completely identical energies and comedy wants that construction so so if i'm and these are based on commedia archetypes but more recently we talk about you know the the Marx brothers or the three stooges or you know as other different uh, uh, archetypes like like when like when i'm directing um replacements for reed reed is our our mo uh-huh. figure from the stooges you know the one who said come on you guys knock it off you know he's that guy and i almost invariably have to tell the actors um and it's hard when they're working with me cuz i'm their boss you know i said you got to bring bring it more you got to bring the heat you got to Access your inner mo a little bit because this the comedy depends on you driving the rhythm, and the rest mm. other people can be funny in different ways. And that's another thing we people need to understand is how to be funny in different ways and also how to serve the text. Mm. It sounds like anarchy, but it's not. We actually have a, a task to reduce a huge topic to two hours, that task we take incredibly seriously. Mm-hmm. So, because if it's just guys you know wanking off for two hours Hey, funny Shakespeare joke then there's nothing compelling from a narrative standpoint and as silly as these shows are they do have a narrative urgency or should interesting
1: what 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 does the notion of something being abridged afford you that doing the complete just doing one play does it
2: um the I mean the Probably the best thing is that it, aff- it affords us to get to the point, um, you know, to get to the thing that we're really interested in. Um, Boz, you were asking about, you know, why was the timing so good? I think one of the timing things in 1987, late 80s, was the rise of MTV. Oh. um uh, the bite size MTV generation, no attention span, young people, stupid young people um, in England. I think we capitalized on the fact that we did Shakespeare the way the Brits think Americans would do Shakespeare, <laughs> which is ba- uh, you know, badly, irreverently. And yet there are those moments. There are those moments where um, th- in all of our shows where we stop and actually get very serious for a second and and. The response typically is, oh, these guys could do this for real if they wanted, you know, and that's a nice thing. It's like seeing Spinal Tap. These guys are uh, excellent musicians. They also happen to be really funny if they it would. The joke wouldn't work as well if they were not as good. musicians. Interesting.
0: So there's something about, you know, what I'm what I'm what I'm really taking from this is like there's something about the level of commitment that is essential to making art work. Like even if you're committed to the wonkiness, the weirdness, um, and we, we talk a lot about, we, we've been talking a lot about world building or like community building. Everyone has to buy in, That this is a complete world they can trust, even if it's absurd, even if it's about the, you know, Elizabethan times, even, you know, we got to buy in. So the commitment can't just be this is a gimmick. Right. So it has to be. I like what you said about like that, that they could do this seriously if they wanted. Like, I think that is the thing about comedy is that you know or like something like the office works because you can tell that the commitment and the talent is there even though they're talking about fucking insane crazy stupid shit (laughs) so it's amazing
2: and if you're not committed why should the audience why should the audience invest if you're not invested? Um, but to your point, Gina, about what does this afford us, um, I think it affords us to kind of get to the point, get to some um, essential truths under the guise of, um, we're just throwing it all into a blender and uh, having fun with it. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's it, whenever people say you can't make a joke about a thing, a particularly a sensitive thing, Or a horrible thing. That's the worst part. If like somebody's dying or something or or somebody's done some nefarious, horrible crime and you can't make a joke about it. I said, well, it's 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 rarely the joke that's the problem. It's the thing that we're making the joke about that is the problem. And I think that's Ah. valuable in the in in the in the case of like our more recent shows, like the ultimate Christmas show, we just said, it's the only Christmas show you'll ever need to see because it's got every, every winter holiday crammed into 90 minutes. But like William Shakespeare's long lost first play abridged, we conceived as sort of first draft Shakespeare. It's his very first play. He was still a genius, but had zero craft and, um, And so he put every single storyline and every single character and every single famous speech into one uh, 100-hour-long unproducible thing that he was not old enough or experienced enough to know know that that's unproducible. So in our script, we reduce it down to a manageable uh, two hours. And it's been, in the few student productions I've seen of it, it's been kind of wonderful because you get to have students going uh, going after – really great material without having to do the whole play around it. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, and I'm imagining that the what the audience likes about this is the accessibility and feeling like, oh, okay, I wouldn't have normally gone to see a Shakespeare play because I would be afraid that I wouldn't understand it. But these people have already told me before I've ever gone to see it that they're going to make this extremely they're going to give me the cliff notes which is all I would have read in high school anyway right and 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 what i i bet when people leave that show they're saying oh i get it i understand shakespeare like i understand the language or i understand and i understand why it's still relevant is that well do, and that's the thing that?
2: we di- we discover all the time which is that people come well for one i've talked to enough young people now like in their 20s like my kids age who said oh my god you were the first Shakespeare production I ever saw when they played our your, your video in English class or whatever. And I always say, as a reward or punishment? <laughs> uh, usually as a reward. Um, uh, oh, shoot, what was I going to say? she said it oh, was, was
0: accessible. Was it? Like, she said, you, like, yeah.
2: Oh, ex- yeah, that's right. And uh, and the other point about that is that people come to the, like, grown-ups will come to see our show going, no, oh, I hate Shakespeare. Why am I being dragged here by my uh, partner? Um and then they come out of it going wait i knew more shakespeare than i thought i did because shakespeare is everywhere shakespeare is in everywhere. Our culture yeah. every yeah. time i every time some shakespeare gets mentioned in any of the tv or films i watch i yell drink and thankfully i don't <laughs> drink because i'd be hammered by the time because he's there all the
1: yeah. time so,
2: so we make the audience feel smarter and i think that's a thing. Uh, yeah. yeah
1: okay but what about with the bible So (laughs) my first thought when you said you did this about the Bible is like, okay, this is sort of a Book of Mormon ish, you know, (laughs) like a send up of religion. But is it a send up? What's what was the why did you pick the Bible to condense?
2: Because we had done the one of the reasons they thought of me to join the company in 92 was because they they. They were getting to be, you know, the, the Complete Works was like five years old, getting to be five years old at that point. And venues where they had performed and said, um, this is great, you guys. What else you got? There was danger of them being a, a, a one-trick pony. And it was a really good trick, but, you know, people wanted other things. And so we thought um, the, the conversation was sort of, well, what we had been we, been, we were very famous in England, more famous in England than we were here and in the States and, um, uh, and the thinking was, what can we, what can we write about? What can we reduce that, that Americans take as seriously as the Brits take Shakespeare? Oh. And we thought, Ooh, ourselves. So we wrote the complete history of America abridged and we were booked at the uh, Kennedy center Whoa. in 93, I think. Yeah. 93. Um, um, and in rep with the complete works wow. and, um, And then, but the the Complete History of America then got extended to uh, five weeks, then seven weeks. And we ended up playing the entire summer of 12 weeks at the Kennedy Center with the Complete History of America abridged. Um, And that got us onto National Public Radio. That started getting us a lot more attention in this country. And the Kennedy Center said, this was great. What else could we do? do. And we had been approached by um, Israeli television to do a half hour uh, reduction film of the Bible. For Israeli television, and it fell through as most of our television sure. deals do. Um, but we told the Kennedy Center, we said, "Well, we have we, we could do we could reduce the Bible, Old Testament first act, oh my New God. Testament second act. In Israel, it'll just be a one act." <laughs> and the Kennedy Center—that's how different times were. This was back in ninety four, ninety five. The Kennedy Center said, "Oh, yeah, that sounds great. You write it and come back and perform it here next summer. Boom, that was it." How'd it go? How'd it go? So, uh, really well. Because again, different times. It was uh, uh in the nineties. The reviews the reviews were great. Um, the audiences were great. It was nominated for a Helen Hayes Award for best new play. Um, um it, the response was really good. And and we had three different writers. We, I mean, Reed and Adam Long, one of the founding members of the RSC, was still with us at that time, and and, and me. And Reed was very not devout, but a, he was a churchgoer. His parents were born again. Um Adam was raised a uh, raised a catholic married a jew and uh, was a practicing buddhist so, so he was a buju catholic or something like that he had a, he has a phrase for it um and and i was basically agnostic leaning to atheism, atheism, but mostly agnostic. I don't believe, I don't care, but they're great stories. So for us, it was, I mean, honestly, and this is the secret for all of the things that we reduce and make fun of, is that it was a celebration of the subject matter. And again, it didn't seem so uh, bold and dangerous and controversial back in the 90s. It was a celebration of the greatest book, ever right um and at, that was some of our marketing site was was the uh, was saying the good book just got better oh my
0: god that's fantastic um, wait I go, i'm i gonna stop you because i i'm like as writer as a writer i'm like super curious even the the freaking process of how do you start yes like you have the bible okay there it is what do you do how did you how do you do that? It's like the weirdest writer's room ever how do you break down the bible
2: well, I mean, the Bible, at least, like Shakespeare's plays, has a structure. You know, they have books. Every, oh, yeah. you know, there are books that you can follow and reduce. And uh, and basically, we started at the very beginning oh, and God. worked our way through. And you know, we learned writing the America show. The America show was harder because, the, well, it was harder in one sense because how how do you pick what to do? Um, but it was easier in a certain sense because you could just go chronologically, right. So that that worked that worked fine. Um, um, but we learned sitting around that table that we can't write sitting around a table. Not, we can't right. anyway. We would argue about nonsense about participles. Um, so rather than sit there, you know, we'd say, "Oh, I have an idea about Lewis and Clark. Let me go away and do that." Oh, I have an idea about doing the Cold War as a film noir. Let, let me try that. I've got a thing about a thing. So then we go away and write, and then we come back together and we read what we uh-huh. have, and now we have something concrete to look at to, to edit, react to, to, to edit and yeah. and sometimes we go mm, yeah that doesn't right. work and sometimes we go oh i there's a germ of an idea there can i can i take it next and see what i can so you do really have I, to
0: trust each other implicitly like and also there's a certain level of because there's two things going on there's a subject matter is huge and also um so you have to trust each other you have to believe in each other and you have to know each other and also um Yeah, there has to be a spirit of still of playfulness based on, right? Like, did you guys, it it sounds like a lot lot of improv training. Did you all have improv training?
2: We all had uh, some improv training, but none of us were truly improvisers. Um, But we were all theater people. We had all worked in ensembles. We had all, some of us, Reed had written a play, a very funny play in college. I wrote a musical in college. Adam helped write the complete works so none of us were complete neophytes in terms of 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 being writers and and i mean the other thing we learned over time and now it's not we don't even worry about it anymore is that there's no point in arguing what's funny You, you put it up on its feet and in front of people and if they laugh it's funny and if they don't it isn't and so it's it's fairly binary um uh so that's that that stopped us from having to have a lot of stupid arguments around the table. We'll just try it, just try it. Mm -hmm. And so back then we, we had that ability in terms of, in terms of the Bible, we did, I I will say, I I said it wasn't controversial, but I, but, but we were conscious of the fact that, you know, there are probably some people who are probably going to be think we're not, we're not being, this isn't cool. So we bent over backwards to not put anything horribly offensive in there the jo- the sex jokes wouldn't be too dirty you know um although we do have a scene but this is clinical this is medical this it's a scene between abraham and god where god is telling him to circumcise his son in god's honor and so that's a very co- funny conversation talking about penises and foreskins and useless <laughs> bits of flesh um uh, uh, but in re-, re in reality, the Bible show is g- our genu genuinely most G-rated show. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Oh, good, that worked out. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it really <laughs> worked out. Now, <laughs> of course,
2: it's, now of course, it's self-censoring, and we got a le- we got a letter once from after Hurricane Katrina, maybe I think. um Somebody wrote us a letter. I took the time to write a, a, an actual letter. This was still in the time of email. I wrote an actual letter saying, um, "Hey, I just saw that there were a lot of productions of the of the complete Word of God abridged." Your blasphemous play in the path of Hurricane Katrina. How dare you? You brought this down upon us. blah blah blah. And I wanted to write back and point out all the churches that were in the path of Hurricane right. Katrina. And right. I was advised that, uh, the, uh, sleeping sleep dogs uh, lie discretion of the better part of valor to use two different wow. Shakespearean I, love it. I love it.
1: So, um, I'm going to ask you a question that you don't have to answer. And if you don't want to answer we'll just, we'll
2: just cut it out. I'm tired of talking about my sexuality.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> In looking at the reduced Shakespeare company website, looking at, um, affiliated artists I don't know if it's a complete list or not it's I'm going to say it's like 95 percent white men so what's it been like for you guys over the last couple of years as theater is having having a huge reckoning
2: with race it's been great because we have been trying to change it up for years and the I, I, and the reason we have it is nobody's fault but our own. You know, it's just you know laziness. Um, and also, we don't. Reed and I don't pay ourselves when we're not actually writing or directing. Um, so we we have other jo- we have other jobs. Um, but it's been great because twenty years, well, twenty three years ago now, we did the complete millennium musical abridged, and it was it was me and. Um, it was me and Reed, and, a third, and the third actor was a woman, uh, specifically my wife, the one with the BFA yeah. in musical theater and experience at Second City as an improviser and a comedian. Why wouldn't you? And it was great, and it was so well-received, and the songs were funny, but it was about the millennium, so it died a quick death. Nobody was interested. But weirdly, many theaters where we performed uh Kennedy Center was one. Um Pittsburgh Public Theater was another. Um many people where we had performed and had seen our previous shows said, This is great. D is great. My that's my wife. She's great, but really, you're a you're a three-man Whoa. company. We were told this wow. 20 years ago. We went, well, no, why? What? Why? So that sent us down a particular didn't send us down. It inhibited change earlier than it should have happened um, because we know a ton of funny women. Um, we also know a ton of funny actors of color, but we haven't been good enough about reaching out to them and getting mm-hmm. them um, um, uh, we've had we've been we've had um, um, a lot of different genders in the cast and backstage but that's not a thing that one sees on a website.
1: Mm-hmm. um right.
2: lots of latinos lots of jews but they don't count right in terms <laughs> of visibility in terms of i mean if we're going to have the conversation let's be honest about you know yeah but i don't see a darker face on that okay so it really yeah. is about colorism really okay yeah. um we have now hired uh three new actors and all of the none of them white men they're all hysterical um and uh we were supposed to have our first performance with some of these new cast members this week Aww. as we as we record those have been postponed till the fall um we were supposed to have one of the one of our other new actors uh play on February 11th and 12th that's been postponed now um so now our next performances are not in April but we hope to bring in all of our new new diverse and crucially Younger actors yeah, right. to to come in. So, I mean, I think the reckoning's been great, okay, L- long overdue and uh, uh, terrific.
1: Okay, good. I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that. So, um, what I mean, without I guess you don't have to give anything away, but like, what's the direction that you're going? That you see the company going on in the next, you know, couple decades? more bridging of more, I mean, cause there's probably a limited number of huge cannons of work that you can condense. So
2: was that a Great. dare?
1: A dare. <laughs> <laughs> a yeah, dare. sure.
2: <laughs> um. Well, you're adorable thinking we have direction. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, right now, our goal is survive the pandemic. Sure. Um. Yeah. We have the, one of the few reasons, well, one of the biggest reasons we've been able to survive is that we have very little overhead. We're a theater company without our own building. We have one full-time employee and we had to furlough her down to halftime. She's our... Office manager, uh, props and wardrobe goddess, you know, uh, keep, but but Reed handles a lot of the business work. Uh, his wife is our general manager. They met when she was running the theater, a theater in Ireland. And then while we were in London, she was running a theater there. And now she's when she's not teaching high school drama and English, she's running our theater. Um, uh, uh, and so they handled the business um, with my putting in two cents every now and then um, uh, I do the weekly podcast I do the company's social media um, uh, 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 where I I guess I drive some of the some of the writing a little bit but I mean that's another thing we've been doing uh, as part of this pandemic and part of the is part of the um, development of the company or the future longevity of the company is just in the last couple of months Reed and I have been updating our scripts. Um, because they were all very, um, I mean, there was, I mean, jokes, all kinds of jokes, uh, go past their sell by date and, um, nothing proves you that you are old and out of touch and not funny faster than complaining how the young people won't let you tell your jokes anymore. Right.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, totally.
2: But you know what you want? People aren't laughing at your jokes. Tell better jokes. So our scripts are almost all of them except for Hamlet's big adventure the latest one have been published um but they are now printed on demand so it's not that hard to change the scripts so we've been up the the America show we would update a lot anyway because every 4 years we would take it out as an election special election edition um and 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 put an improvised section in the second act where the the two leading candidates for the, for president would take questions from the audience in real time. And th- that was always fun. Um, but some of the more recent shows, some of the more popular shows, all the great books, um, uh, uh, com- uh, completely Hollywood, uh, the complete history, history of comedy abridged, um, ultimate Christmas and, and long lost. Um, we've gone through, we've, we've done, try to do two things, go, go through and either update the jokes that are now, um, out of date, or get rid of the jokes that may have been funny five or ten years ago, but aren't funny now, and arguably maybe they weren't that funny then uh, mm-hmm. to some people um, but the other thing is all of our shows are very meta, and we have always told the truth in the scripts about the 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 white man demographic of the of the people doing this comedy i mean we 've always tried to use our identities as as comic fodder, and we so whenever we Whenever we get a new actor in the company, we change those jokes and change those references so they fit better with the actors on stage. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is go through the script and make them less dependent on a specific demographic, like old white guys. Well, we weren't that old then, but – but going through and just and getting rid of the too many of the gender signifiers, because there really isn't any reason why it needs to be five. You know, it's so, I I gotta say, it's
0: so interesting to hear and, and, and lovely actually to hear that. Like, here's the deal. Like you gotta update your shit. Like, I don't think people like to change. Right. And Gina and I were both therapists. We get it. Like nobody likes change. It fucking sucks. But if you want to not be obsolete you have to change and i think it's great that you that you take the reckoning of sorts and make changes versus dig your heels in because then it doesn't work and so i i actually it gives me hope that you're changing shit because a lot of people that we talk to are like you know yes the reckoning is great blah 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 i'm going to do my best but we don't really know what we're doing instead of saying no we're gonna make the changes like just make the changes it's hard It's you
2: know yeah well and nobody the, the, nobody wants to be on stage telling a joke that gets booze instead of laughs you know at, at least of all us and the i mean this this particular reckoning about the scripts started about four or five years ago when we both started teaching college more frequently mm. and we'd get pushback from our students going wait wait is this funny I said well it was (laughs) all I could tell you is that it was um but it isn't now and I get that you know and so that's been you know if you're going to be any kind of teacher at all you got to listen to your students and if you're just going to get pissed because your students have a different opinion then maybe you shouldn't be teaching
1: I love that I just heard uh something that I'm going to try to incorporate which is um if you're over 40 you should strive to have an un, a 30 and under mentor, not a mentee, but a younger person who's much younger than you as your mentor as a way of keeping current with progress. And I, 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 I echo what Boss saying. It gives me a lot of hope what you're saying because not that a lot of people wouldn't answer that question necessarily, but it would make a lot of people uncomfortable and it would make a lot of people give like a very pat answer. And really, what how i'm interpreting what you're saying is i'm not afraid to say that what we what we really thought was the bee's knees then we we see hasn't hasn't worn very well hasn't aged very well and And your goal is still, your goal is not to protect your pride from 20 years ago. Your your goal is to make your audiences continue to like the work. That's what everybody's goal should be. But everybody gets caught up in their own ego about it.
2: Well, and and the thing is, I mean, this is the the biggest argument to go to college, as far as I'm concerned, is that the, the more you know, the more there is to laugh at. You know, life becomes full full of richer comedy because of it. And the, the biggest reason to get more different types of people on stage is that there are more different pe- types of jokes you can then tell.
0: You know what I think? I you think know? comedy is – it's really great that – comedy allows us to do this because people who do just straight drama and Gina and I were just talking about this like straight drama it's like takes itself so freaking seriously that comedy is a really good meter for what is going on in the world right and so if you can write comedy and you can say okay like that wasn't funny and the reason I know it wasn't funny is actually I tested it out and nobody laughed like you're saying it's binary like you have a thing is where drama is a little more subjective whether you're moved by something comedy it's like no the fucking people didn't laugh so it's not funny like there you go
2: some of our favorite some of our favorite reviews are the ones that said oh this was horribly unfunny despite the hundreds of people in the audience (laughs) laughing this was not right 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 oh i love love that that. i love that.
1: Well, Austin, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but was there, is there any uh, anecdote or thing that you want to share from your theater
0: school days or,
2: Oh gosh, which, which one should I choose? A time which and time in theater I...
0: school, whether undergrad or grad, where you were like, what is happening? Why am I doing this? Or, or I can't believe that just happened.
2: Mm. Wow. God.
0: I can think of one, and then you think of yours. I was like a flashback to um we had to Rick Murphy, our teacher, had us doing an exercise where we were blindfolded, and we had to do movement around the room with each other, blindfolded and and there was always a jackass who decided to do some crazy ninja tumbling moves and bashed into right, people yeah. and i just remember i really was hurt in that exercise and because someone's ego decided blindfolded i'm going to do a crazy karate kick and kick someone in the face now what right. now come on anyway i just thought of that cuz i hurt myself the other day and i was like <laughs> yeah and i think it might have been taped actually but anyway so, uh, Tate, okay. so i back. will share that and that just came to mind to to take some pressure off i don't know if that made me think of anything but there you go uh,
2: well it didn't make me think of, of of anything specific except except one thing that i really loved about boston university again again um there was not there was some direction but not a lot it was Internally directed, and I had directed some musicals in high school, well, and in college, uh, and uh, I, I thought, I thought, I th- I just don't want to do that. I wanted to challenge myself, and so when I was at BU, I directed like all different kinds of plays, and that was just really rewarding that I got the opportunity to do this. Like I did a 1930s drawing English drawing room thing on an eight foot by eight foot square where the audience was on two risers. Like the whole thing wasn't bigger than 30 feet square. Um, I directed a Sam Shepard play, Fool for Love. I directed a big, broad Neil Simon comedy i directed joe orton's what the butler saw a fan, you know the, uh, one of the greatest modern farces very problematic right now uh, in terms of in terms of how some of those jokes play but i also and then i directed bent Martin i Sherman's. love that
1: play Martin i Sherman's. love that play
2: bent and it was again this I, this was in eighty nineteen eighty four. 1984 you know, oh, really? So yeah. kind of right in the teeth of of what was happening with AIDS mm-hmm. and everything. And there was one professor there uh, at BU, Rick Winter. Um, he was married to Bob Chaplin. Bob Chaplin was one of um, uh, Kristen Linkletter's either assistants mm-hmm. or disciples. Just one of the finest voice teachers ever, and one of the just the most amazing teachers I ever had. Um, and 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 Rick was the one-stop shopping for all the students that were worried about AIDS and what they could do and where they could get information and where they could get, you know, where they could be heard. And so I directed Bent and wasn't even aware of how important that play had become to so many of the students because we were just rehearsing and I was just trying to make it happen in with all the limitations that you have in a student program. And at the end of it, at the end of the Final performance that you could. There were people were so packed in the room, and 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 people were standing, people were weeping, people. Rick came up to me and just looked at me, and I fucking burst into tears. I had no idea I had this this reservoir of pent up mm-hmm. feeling. about the thing. And I, and, and it, it told me something, it told me something important about not only the actors on stage or the play being staged, but the audience that's hearing it, the audience that's receiving it and how they're taking it and how that we, and how we are working in tandem, working together in the theatrical space to create this event. And uh, uh, I, I, that's the story that comes to That's me when I'm in yeah. the Yeah, well,
1: very, very meaningful and very much at the heart of why people, you know, do theater. Thank yeah. you. Before we let you go, wait, hang oh, hey, on. Oh, before yeah. we let you go, what is your podcast about?
2: Ah, the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, the very imaginatively named Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. What it says on the tin: um, it we started it in December of two thousand and six. I've been doing it every week wow. since then. I just dropped my 789th episode. Sh- congratulations. So we've been doing it for eight, 789 weeks. Um, uh, it's, it started off because we had, been, we had been running in England for 10 years at the Criterion Theater in Piccadilly, and we had closed in 2005. And we thought, oh, well, what, what can we do to do something to give our fans in England and kind of around the world? And Matt Croak, who you know, um uh, it was was the podcast whisperer uh, just say you got to get on this you guys got to get on this we've done so much radio we've done that bbc world service radio show we've been on npr a bunch we love audio comedy but the thought of creating content every week was daunting mm-hmm. writing but i thought well wait a second i could just turn on a microphone And just, we could just talk, we could riff for 15 or 20 minutes. And that would give people something. It'd be be a little bit like the Beatles Christmas records that they would Mm -hmm. send to their fans at the end of every year. They would just turn on a microphone for 15 or 20 minutes and they would do whatever they do. And then they turn it off and send it out. And that's kind of what I've been doing. And it was about three or four months in to the thing that I realized, well, wait a second. I could, I don't, doesn't just, doesn't have to be just the Reduce Shakespeare Company. I could talk to many people, anybody about what they do. And, and, and with my wife's, um, uh, the, the second city Chicago comedy mafia, uh, that, that, that I'm a member of by marriage, uh, uh, has so many, you know, famous and successful people that I've, I've pimped a bunch of them to be my guests on podcasts. But, but as we've toured around the world, we have met so many interesting artists and actors and comedians and writers and directors and novelists and, 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 and people. And it's just been. It's been a treat because I'm definitely not getting paid to do the podcast. I don't have a sponsor, um, but it's only 15 or 20 minutes long. And it's been enormous fun because I just get to talk to all these people and then share that conversation. So, love it, love it,
1: love it. Thank you so much, Austin. You're welcome, you
2: guys. Thank you.
1: liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!